Hey, tennis fans, you're listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre here to wrap up the first Grand Slam of the tennis calendar. Yes, the Australian Open, Mike, officially in the books. One out of four in the books. Uh, It's been a fantastic couple of weeks. And of course, we had to turn to someone who was on the ground, who was there, breathing it, living it experiencing it and so we've got a return guest one of our faves he's an expert tennis commentator presenter olympic contributor and an all-around great guy uh nick mccarville great to have you back on matchpoint canada good day guys i'm trying to remember the last time i was with you on the pod maybe it was at one of the um canadian events i can't remember i think it's been a couple of years here yeah Yeah. but uh yeah it's been a while we keep kind of missing each other although we always want to have you back on so it's it's great to see you man (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's great to see you too. And it's been, I, I mean, I'm I'm in the Monday after you guys are Sunday night in Canada, but what an awesome finish, especially, you know, Sunday night, we'll talk about a Yannick Sinner winning his first major and guys, I, I don't know if it'll happen for you in 2025, but get to the Australian Open. It is such mm-hmm. an incredible event. They have grown it so much. I mean, obviously I was working for them, so I'm biased in a way, but it just has become, from an event standpoint, it's just become the Grand Slam. They've grown it into a music festival. They had over a million fans. Um, yeah, it, it was a really good three weeks of tennis in Melbourne. Yeah, and, the, and that sort of leads nicely into my first question, just uh, about the two weeks in Melbourne, your experience uh, on the grounds. I always sense Australia is such like a sporting country from just watching on TV. There seems just to be this great electricity and atmosphere throughout uh, yeah, what was your experience uh, working this time around and, and what roles were you mainly covering? Yes, I mean, all of what you said, Ben, it is a sporting country and Melbourne's a really great sporting city. And then you've got the Australian Open, which is in, you know, the old Olympic precinct from 1956, which also has a soccer field. It's got a lot of the AFL practice grounds, a swimming facility. And then Melbourne Park is just across the street next to the MCG, which is the cricket ground, which holds, I think, like 100,000 fans. Um, and they just do the summer of tennis so well. And, you know, the, Tennis Australia has grown the Australian Open hugely with uh, Victoria, with Melbourne. Um, you know, that's sort of the PRE bend of it all. But I, I think it really does sit itself well in kicking us off in the year. And the players love coming. A lot of the players, I think, like how close they are. We interviewed Steph Cisapas at one point, and he was like, I love that we're in the city and that it's a two minute drive versus any of the other slams, oftentimes they're doing a 20 or 50 minute drive to get to from the hotel to the venue. So I think that's huge. And, you know, the majors are the majors are the four Everests in our sport now. You know, we, we have these peaks and valleys of the tours and the tours are always going to be so important because we need year round tennis and we need tennis to touch every part of the globe. But the the Grand Slams really have become the four mountaintops. We add a fifth this year with the Olympics, obviously. But I just have watched all the slams sort of grow and change and challenge each other. And they're challenging the tours to be better as well. But I think it's such a huge few weeks for the players monetarily to get that funding money because of all the revenue that's coming in for the slams. There's obviously been those revenue debates around, you know, is there better profit sharing models? That can be a debate we can continue to have. But for the players, a lot of them, I think, you know, if you're ranked outside the top 50, that is a huge paycheck for you, even if you make the second round, even if you make Quali's final round and you're ranked 200th in the world, that's big for you. 
Um, so there's all those pieces thrown in. And Ben, I had a few different roles. I was writing for the Australian Open website during qualifying week, week which was fun. I will say, fast facts, that I got turned down for a Diana Yastremska interview after her very first qualifying round win. Okay. <laughs> she goes, are you at the tournament? And I was like, yeah, I am. And she goes, no, thanks. And I was like, all right, no problem. Well, it <laughs> like, worked out for her, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and then I did a few different things. I was on the uh, World Feed commentary team for the Australian Open. And then I don't know if you guys have seen, but I'll shout out our cinema sessions. We did a series of interviews with players, mm -hmm. both former and present. We stacked up some Australian Open highlights for them from the archive, sat them down, popped some popcorn, sat on the couch. Um, we had Andre Agassi, we had Steph Sisapas, Nick Kyrgios, Dylan Alcott, Chanda Rubin, uh, Isla Tomjanovic. I mean, it's just a really, it's on the Australian Open YouTube uh, channel, and I think they're going to put out longer clips soon. But that was probably the highlight for me, Ben, is to get to sit down on the couch and just watch these Lena was sitting next to me is her 10 year anniversary of her title. And um, yeah, that was, that was really cool. It was a, a good experience for me overall. I love hearing you talk about it. And to me, the Aussie open is, I mean, I can't really, it's hard for me to rank the slams, but it, it's very important because it's the first big one of the season. And you're so excited to see how these players are going to come out of the gate, what kind of changes they've made, how excited they are, even though it's a 12 month rolling, you know, rotating ranking, you still have so much optimism, you know, amongst the players in their camps and their fans too, who are watching at home. Um, I definitely would love to get there in 2025. I know Ben as well. Uh, Nick, I might need you to write me a, a letter of support for my wife and children to get that approved. Um, but one <laughs> day, definitely. And um, yeah, I want to ask you first a little bit about your role at events because it, you're such a chameleon. You do so many different things for so many different tournaments. We've seen it firsthand here in Toronto at the National Bank Open, and we certainly hope we get to see you here again. But when you go into an event, especially an event of this level, asked to do so many things, have you just got that groove now because you've done it so many times? Or is it, uh, you know, does it take a little bit of work to get into the swing of things once once you're there? Yeah, Mike, it's a good question. I mean, just in, in my workflow. And I used to, when I was doing the chameleon, when I started really doing the chameleon act and, and trying to take on, put on different hats, um, I, I found it really stressful and it was actually really hard. I felt like I had to be across every match and know every stat and know every storyline. And now I've kind of taken a little bit of a step back where I only try to do what I can. And if I don't know something, I don't say it. If I'm not sure of something, I don't say it. If I have two minutes to look something up before I do a live hit or what have you, then I'll, I'll double check. Now, not to say I don't get things wrong at times. Of course I do. But I think that I used to put a lot of pressure on myself in that sense. Um, you know, uh, for example, I did a couple morning hits with the Today Show here, which is Channel 9's news breakfast show. Um, I did a couple interviews with the Australian Open Twilight Show, which was their, you know, AO Radio's uh, evening show leading into the night session. And just coming on there, and not that I, I, I think most of the listeners of this podcast especially will know that I have experience, I've done this for a while, and not to say I know everything, but I feel like I have enough of a base. And you know, now I think too, the most important thing is being able to understand and feel how it feels on the ground and feed that back for people because the majority of the tennis world, it feels so big when you're here. And you guys know this from Toronto and Montreal, it feels like such a moment in the city, in the event, but most of the fans are watching from afar, right? So to try to give that back to them, 
And then I always go back to of like, well, people really just want to know what the movers and shakers are saying. So looking at press transcripts, understanding what interviews they've given. I did a few hits with Channel 10 here, which is another one of the news stations. And I was always just listening to, you know, the the reporter, Adrian Frank Franklin, was always telling me, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, these players in this next segment. So I'd walk over to those interviews listening to press conferences because I, there's always conjecture on our side, right? And we can think that we know what the players are thinking or how they're acting. But unless it's them, it's coming from them, then that's just conjecture. You don't actually know. So I think that's been the biggest thing for me, Mike, is finding that balance and then really trying to get into it and understand. It's not just the numbers. It's not just unforced errors and double faults or whatever the stat sheet says. It's what the moment, what the moment is, the highlights, uh, and then understanding, you know, how they're feeling about their tennis overall. Yeah, well said. And you're, you're, you've definitely moved into that sort of veteran status, veteran status, if you will, <laughs> and uh, mover and shaker for sure. You fall into that category, and that's one of the reasons we love having you back, and why you know local media and all the places you go to latches on to because you're a trusted source, uh, and we love your delivery too, and that's part of it too. You can have all the information in the world, but you got to know how to get it across, and you certainly know how to do that want to ask you we'll start with maybe the men's side here and it's always special for me and I think tennis fans in general to see someone capture their maiden grand slam their first major and when that happens to someone who happens to be an all-around great guy like Yannick Sinner as well just a bonus um I get the vibe now his consistency his belief level is just through the roof he totally believes he belongs at the top of the men's game and and he's proven that with his victory uh, do you think this is going to be now a big moment for him to sort of just move forward and, and start accumulating, you know, moments like this uh, with more regularity, I guess? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think you put that's really well put, Mike. And I I just I do. Uh, last night, actually, to go off of what I was just saying is I sat down and they brought uh, Simona Vagnozzi and Darren Cahill both into the press room, which was actually really cool. I think the slam should really start doing that more with bringing the coaches of the winners they're bringing coaches in pretty, pretty much from quarterfinals on and making them really available to press, which I think is cool. And our sport should do more and better of. And the coaches should play a part in that as well. Um, but I asked them, I was like, did Yannick surprise you at all over the last few weeks? Because, some, you know, Vagnozzi and obviously Darren Cahill, they're, they're two guys that have really, you know, been experienced and been with a lot of successful players. Uh, Vagnozzi was on Cecanato's team when he made that uh, French Open run semifinals a few years ago. And they just said no. I, you know, they just said that they that they trusted this player. And Darren, I can't remember Darren's exact quote, but he said, basically, we saw the value and the talent in this individual. That's why we signed up to work with them. This is a business transaction that has a lot of personal um, meat to it. And Darren said, it's our job then to make sure we bring out the best in him. And he basically, they said that they they feel like they're doing that job. Now, they they also feel like they've got a long way to go in, in terms, Mike, of making his tennis better. But to answer your question, I, I think you're right. I think this is the first of, let's see how many. You never know what the future is going to bring. He could break his ankle tomorrow and be out for six months, and then you don't know what happens after that. But in terms of personal development and tennis development, I just thought it was so huge the way that he navigated this Australian Open. He gets Novak Djokovic on a bad day. It doesn't matter. He beats Novak Djokovic in a round, in a stage of the tournament. No one had ever done that before. Novak was 20-0 in AO semis and finals. And then follows that up by coming back from two sets to love down against a free-swinging and aggressive Daniil Medvedev. That's pro stuff, and that deserves a slam. 
and it feels as though there's all the work. And Darren said, you know, the Italians, they love to play hard and they love to work hard. And this is a, a family unit. You could kind of feel that with the whole family in terms of how they work as a team. And yeah, I, I feel like, you know, throw Yannick in there now with Carlos Alcarez, throw him in there with obviously Novak. Um, Daniil gets to be part of that equation now as a six-time Grand Slam finalist. Um, but I think I think that Sinner, and the dangerous thing to me about Sinner is that he can play on every surface. Like he's going to be a factor on clay at both the French and the Olympics. He's going to be a factor at Wimbledon where he made his first semi and he just won his first slam on hard. You could have argued that maybe he wouldn't win his first slam on hard. So I just think it's going to be a, a launching into the next stratosphere for him. Yeah. Yeah. And you're highlighting the fact that we have a, a really strong top four right now in the men's game, all, all slam winners. And, you know, you touched on this incredible men's final. It was an interesting final for me to watch because, you know, I, I woke up bright and early and thinking I'm happy to see either of these players win. You know, Yannick Sinner have that breakthrough and get his first Grand Slam title, which he did. Daniil Medvedev, who's been in this spot a number of times, it would be a worthy champion. And I had this sort of mix of happiness for Sinner and just devastation for Daniil Medvedev because, again, he, he put himself in such a great position. He played unbelievable tennis for those first two sets. And again, he suffers, you know, a crushing defeat where he's up two sets to love in an Australian Open final. And it never felt like he did that much wrong. It's just Yannick Sinner maintained this high level. Um, I, I think Medvedev sort of tired by by the fourth and fifth set. Just thoughts on his, his tournament getting back to this place and maybe how it sets up for his 2024, because he had this happen in 2022. And that was, of course, you know, one of one of the tougher seasons of his career. Yeah. Tougher is putting it lightly, Ben. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I don't know. And he actually said exactly that last night in press. I don't know if you guys have read the transcript, but he said uh, in 2022, I didn't think it broke me and it broke me and it took him, you know, what, almost two years to get back to another slam final after that Rafa final. So it's going to be a watch this space. I think for Medvedev, he's, he just is such a class act. Like no matter what you think about Daniil Medvedev, you know, call him the octopus, call him quirky, call him crazy. You know, it looks like a, looks like he's playing, you know, a video game out there often. Um, he's, he's pretty classy. And I thought he was really classy in, in celebrating Yannick, you know, congratulating him and the, the trophy ceremony. Um, and then he came into press and, I was looking to it like my Twitter comments. I mean, social media is such a dumpster fire, but like people are like, oh, he's, you know, choke Fedev. And how can he say that it's better to be in a final than, you know, than uh, lose in a final than lose in the semis and quarters. And these are human beings, you know, and mm -hmm. I just, I think too, you guys have felt it at the Canadian events, but, and I think there's actually a way our sport has to be a little bit better about getting this across in the TV product and how we talk about it is when you're on that court, every ounce of, and I'm using my, we're doing a podcast, but I'm using my fists and I'm being really animated right now. Every, every ounce of one player and their box and their team and all the preparation is going in one direction and the other team is trying to go in the other direction. And that's not just happening for the first point or the last point. It's happening for every point. Mm -hmm. And Medvedev said, I tweeted this quote. He said, um, 
I was, I was, I was close, but was I, you know, I was so close, but was I really that close? And maybe that's the mentality. Maybe that was, that's his problem is that, yeah, Daniil, you were at, you were at four all in the third set and a two sets to love lead. So why did you think that you weren't points away from winning your second major? So maybe there's the critique. I don't know, but you also can say Sinner was surging at that point. I mean, the the dynamic had shifted at the end of the second set, right? When Sinner got the break back from 5-1 and made the first two sets. Because 6-3, 6-1 is much different than 6-3, 6-3. And that's where our sport, that's what makes our sport unique, is that two sets to love feels like it is Everest and you've sprayed water down the side and, you, you know, you're wearing uh, ballet flats, not hiking boots, to get up that slippery mountain. But Yannick, and that's what I mean sort of with that force of coming at him. And I, I feel like I veered off to many different not answering your questions. No, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, I like the I, strong the strong hand gestures. We're putting this up on YouTube. I know, it's sure. the podcast, damn it. Um, I, but I really feel that. And I felt like Yannick trusted himself. And I will say, Ben, and Daniil said this a little bit too, and this is not a cop-out. He set a record for time on court this Australian Open. What was it, yeah. 24 hours and 24 30 something. minutes? Yeah. yeah. 24 hours on court. He said it's the most broken he's ever felt, even though he has the most professional team around him to be as ready as possible to go on court. He said, every time I took court, I felt good. Um, yeah, so I don't know how this is. I mean, this this is pretty shattering. He's one in five now. In major finals, he was playing a first-time Grand Slam finalist. This wasn't Rafa. This was Yannick Sinner, and that's no disrespect to Yannick Sinner. Um, I don't know how this is going to impact Medvedev. He certainly seemed to be understanding what happened in the moment, but you know, maybe he gets back home, and maybe he goes to Rotterdam or Indian Wells or Monte Carlo, and it just becomes like real as shit that he is that he had this opportunity slip through his fingers. But I think I want to go back to my, my hand gestures on podcasts is that the mm -hmm. center team and camp was really trusting that Yannick had won their last three matchups, had just beaten Novak Djokovic and hadn't spent, he had spent six fewer hours on court, six hours of physical tennis. Yannick Sinner was down two sets to love, but then argue that he was up six hours to love. You know, I mean, it's like he it didn't matter that it was a two sets to love lead because he was like, okay, great. I'll play best of five. I knew I was playing best of five when we stepped on this court. So I, I don't I don't know what and I don't think Daniil knows. And now it's his job to hopefully unplug a little bit and then get back to it when and if when he can and feels like when he can bring his best. And yeah, I, I, sorry, one more thing. I just, I just, if, if Daniil takes all of February off, I know he's got a lot of points to defend and he probably has a lot of appearance fees to cash in on. Mm -hmm. I, I would excuse it. Take February off, you totally. know, come back for Indian Wells, come back, come back for Miami. He, I don't think he likes the conditions at Indian Wells come back for Miami. But um, yeah, I, I hope that he's able to process it. He said he's a, a totally different person from 2022. So let's hope he can process it differently. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And you kind of highlight the aspect of our best of five format on the men's side in tennis that it, it's an accumulation of these two weeks, right? And you think about how valuable some of those earlier wins from Yannick Sinner beating great players like Rublev, Hachinov in succession in, in straight sets. Uh, the big time semifinal win over Novak Djokovic. And, and that'll lead me into my next question. 
what do we make of the hiccup from Djokovic? Because, you know, 54 unforced errors in this match, uh, just an all-out sort of struggle. And I, I don't think, as he said, I, I don't think I've ever seen him play that poorly in a match uh, in a big stage mm. at the Australian Open. Is this something more than a hiccup? Are we seeing any sudden decline or is he going to bounce back from this pretty quickly? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I, who knows? Like I did, I did Australian uh, Channel 9. I did the morning show at the night after Djokovic lost. And, you know, this is mainstream news. They're like, is this the changing of the guards? And it's like, well, I don't know. Is it? <laughs> you know, we've had these young guys, and I know you know this, Ben, but, like, we've got we've got Carlos, we've got Holger Runa. I know you guys in Canada, you've been so excited about Felix and Dennis, but you've also seen sort of the peaks and valleys of these guys coming up the last few years and sometimes, you know, being able to, to play as well as they have and not in others. So... For Djokovic, I think it's definitely disappointing. Um, I don't feel like he ever hit his like peak nole during this Australian Open, so I think maybe that's a little bit concerning for his team. Of like, why wouldn't why weren't we able to hit peak? I know he's dealing with a little bit of a, a sniffle or a cold during the tournament, so is that impacting him more now at thirty six than it has you know say five years ago? Um, but I, I wouldn't put too much stock into it until Novak consistently shows us because this is what we do to champions. Right. And we, they have one, they slip once and we're like, look, you fell. And they're like, yeah, but I also stood up 7 million times before. So like, why, why are you critiquing, you know? And I know the question is valid, right? The question is what happens to Novak? I think we just see how it goes. And I think, you know, the French Open will be big, right? He's the defending champion. And um, I think that he's put a lot of stock. He's still, if you look at the CV, what's the one thing that's missing? I'm using air quotes. What's the one thing that's missing from Novak's CV is Olympic gold and singles. So I think he's going to put a lot of stock into that. And until he consistently is being beaten in, you know, the fourth round quarters and semis of a major, I just don't see that this is a huge shift for him unless we start to really get that data on a on a um, consistent basis. And I also think it's credit to Yannick Sinner that he beat him. He beat him. Novak has played a million Grand Slam matches, not very good. And now he said it was one of his worst days. Fine, we'll take that for what it is. But Yannick Sinner beat him. He lost the third set, and that could have been the shift. That could have been where Novak was like, now I've got you. I, I've bit you on the leg and I'm going to drag you into my cave and eat you alive. And he's done that a million times. He's done it to Taylor Fritz over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so Yannick was able to deny him that. So I I will be curious to see, you know, for Novak, how his team, do they recalibrate? Someone was uh, on the Australian Open Radio. Someone was like, heads will roll for Novak's team. And it's like, will they? Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe the camp is like, hey, we gave it our all. We go again. Or maybe mm-hmm. Goran is never heard from again. I don't know. But like, I, I, I don't think, think anyone's panicking over there in that camp after the season he had in 2023. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Um, Nick, we got about seven minutes left on our Zoom just as a heads up. And this stuff <laughs> yes. has been fantastic on the men's side. But Sorry, certainly... guys. It's been, I'm, it's, these are TED Talks. Sorry. No, we love it. it. We love it. Uh, this will be part one of your 2024 appearances with us. And then we'll do the second part later in the season. But I'm yeah. going to get quick to my question. It's on the women's tour. We want to talk about what happened on the ladies' side in Melbourne. And just first of all, Arena Sabalenka, wow, has she ever turned herself into a bona fide a star? 
accomplished star now too. You look at what she's done semifinals are better in her last six slams. So just a, a word on her and, and how she cemented herself as a, a real, a real star. Like I said, second of all, speaking of stars, we've got some real returning ones on the women's tour that really just highlights the depth to me. Radikanu, Kerber, Anisimova, Naomi Osaka. The women's tour has got a lot going on for it, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um, I'll start with Sabalenka, huge win. Um, they've found the equation that works. They're, they're, Kind of like Sinner, but different vibes. They work hard and they play hard. And Anton Dubrov has been with her now for a couple of years as her head coach. Jason Stacy's come in and been been very imperative around um, sort of that assistant coach role. Um, and they have a good time, you know, like her autographing Jason Stacy's bald head and drawing koalas on it and TikTok dances. And yeah, Mike, she can autograph your heads this year. Uh, <laughs> Summer, yeah. Watch. Yeah. Um, I actually think that is really important for Sabalenka because she's got all the talent in the world. I think it was Nicole Pratt said in our commentary, one of our meetings, she's Serena 2.0. I mean, you just look at the game. They've fixed the serve in the last 18 months. Uh, yeah, 18 months. They've changed that stroke. And she has so much power. And now she has experience. And look at 2023. I mean, she won her first slam and you could have made an argument for her to win all of the other three majors. Did lost that lead to Muhava in the French Open semis, lost to Anjabur, I believe, in the semifinals yep. at Wimbledon, and then was leading Coco Goff in the final of the US Open. She had control of that match and then comes in here and she's just the fifth woman, I believe, in the century to not drop a set at the Australian Open. I mean, she was just the best player by far. And Iga Svantec is still world number one. I think that she is still going to be the favorite at the French Open because of her record on clay. But right now it feels like Arena Sabalenka is the best female tennis player in the world. That said, I totally agree with you. And sometimes I feel like we don't give the women enough credit. There's just so much good talent out there. And it's so great to see, as you said, all of those comeback stories. And now it's going to be about the consistency and bringing their best tennis in the biggest moments. And I mean, what a moment for Jung Chin Wen to come through to make her first Grand Slam final. That top half of the women's draw, it felt like it was falling apart. Just in sense of the names and the stories and what do we make of the Yastremska run into, you know, the semifinals. But Jung Chin Wen, we've been talking about her for a few years and to get to her first major final at 21, I thought that was huge. Um, and I think for... Uh, it's interesting because there are just so many women who can who can do it. And, and we've been shown that. And I think that's the exciting part. And I will just be very intrigued to see over this next few months, who does rise to these big occasions. And I'm so interested to see how Naomi Osaka, who's committed to playing a lot of tennis this year, how she goes, man, she had a bad draw, like a uh, uh, game Garcia, Caroline yeah. Garcia playing some of her best tennis to take out Osaka um, that was a bummer because I think Osaka could have made fourth round quarters and then you, who knows what happens. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll touch just quickly on Zhang Xinwen. I mean, I remember watching her up close in Toronto a couple of years ago, beating Bianca Andrescu on center court and just being so impressed, not just with her her baseline game from the back of the court, but her composure, her athleticism, all of it. 
And uh, I know this draw really opened up for her, but it does seem like she's someone who's going to remain towards the top of the game. I wanted to ask you because you you mentioned off the top your cinema sessions that you ran with the Australian Open, and you got the chance to connect with uh, the Chinese champion, Li Na, who of course won 10 years ago. What was that experience like speaking with her? I also, I didn't know she had this great sense of humor. Like, I don't know that much about her personality, but it was kind of cool tying that all together and then seeing Zhang reach a final. And obviously, Li Na was a huge idol of hers. Yeah, I mean, Li Na is the best. Actually, Ben, right when I was starting to come on the tour, like 2011, 12, 13 is when she was, you know, winning slams and top five. She's just the best. She's so funny. She's so personable. Her English actually has taken a little bit of a dip since she's left tour. She, she was even funnier previously because mm. the English is a little quicker, but um, still has a great sense of humor. I think she's been a huge ambassador for Chinese tennis. Um, we know there's a lot of layers there, but I think that she's held that title uh, in a big way. And I think she was actually really instrumental for Jung Chin Wen this tournament because I don't think they've really spoken very much. And Lina, actually, after she came into our studio for cinema sessions, she went outside and actually met and chatted with Jung Chin Wen, which I just thought was so cool. And I think that that gave Chin Wen some confidence in this tournament just to be like, oh, like you're a person and you're encouraging me and I can do this because you were doing what I'm doing now. I think seeing that realness in person can be really big for these players. And I, I think this was this was no fluke for Jung Chin Wen. I think there's there's huge things for her this year, Ben, but also beyond in the next five, 10, 15 years. We've been pretty high on her, eh, Ben, the last uh, year or so. Big I think time. really since we saw her play Bianca yeah. in that match and we're like, yep. whoa. Uh, it's val it's warranted. It's valid, yeah. And we spoke with her agent last summer who said, yeah, she's going to make top 10 early in 24 and watch out for her next year and look at what's mm. happened already. So wow. there An you go. agent predicting right. something correctly. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we predicted something correctly, and that's that we were going to have uh, a whole lot of fun with you back here on Matchpoint Canada, right? So thank you for joining Thanks, us while you're still there in Melbourne. We hope that you do come back later this season because I feel like we're just scratching the surface. And yeah. um, thanks for the idea of the autograph from Sabalenka on my uh, Yeah, there you go. Head this Make summer. it happen, we'll Mike. See. We'll see. You can do this. Take care, and we'll have you back soon, eh? Thanks, Thanks guys. Cheers for that. There you have it, our guests for the week, commentator and friend of the show, uh, Nick McCarvel. Great to have him back. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have friends who, when they find out I host a tennis podcast, they're like, oh, how do you do that? It must be so difficult. And, you know, when you have a guest like Nick on, it's super easy because, uh, and I'm not trying to say they do all the work, but like, he's got such a great, obviously, you know, a delivery and a knowledge of the sport. But I love listening to him speak and how he crafts his answers and really goes deep with his firsthand knowledge of the players, of what's going on down there. And and because he wears so many hats, he he knows he's got his finger on the pulse of the sport from many different levels. Yeah, and he's he's so incredibly well prepared. Uh, I mean, I saw that firsthand working alongside him in, in Toronto a couple of summers ago and, and hosting a morning show with him. And the preparation, I think, is he highlighted goes beyond statistics it's you're trying to tell stories and you're trying to give the storyline from the grounds and and what is happening in melbourne as as these matches are unfolding obviously we can all you know view the statistics and they help 
shed light on context, but uh, he's a terrific storyteller. If you guys get the chance, I've only watched a couple of them, but the cinema sessions that he did for the Australian Open, sitting down with 16-year-old Mira Andreva, recapping a few of her big moments and big wins in 2023 was was so cool. And she's just, you know, such a young person, but this this great budding player. And then speaking with some veterans, as, as he mentioned as well, and I still have to catch up with a few of those interviews. I can't wait to see them. Nick gave me some good career advice, too, in the industry a few years ago when he said to me, Mike, it's time that you retire your old Twitter handle and email address, which, you know, when you've had that email address since like forever, you just kind of you <laughs> yeah. grow attached to it. And it was yeah, like totally. at pro tennis fan. And he's like, dude, you're like you're beyond that now. You know what I mean? Like you're in. So you got to get that professional handle, which, by the way, is at McIntyre Tennis and McIntyre Tennis at gmail.com for anyone who ever wants to reach out. Um, I don't think we plug our handles anymore on the show, do we? We should. No, we um, should. If you want to follow right. me, it's at Ben Lewis MPC, standing for Matchpoint Canada. There you go. So, you know, he gave me that little tidbit of advice, and I'm like, oh, you know what? Crap. He's totally right. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was time. Yeah. Uh, if, if we talk a little more tennis of what unfolded, just uh, apart from our winners, obviously, Arena Sabalenko, we mentioned her incredible tournament, Yannick Sinner winning the maiden title. If you look on the women's side, I mean, a number of surprises. Who were you kind of particularly impressed by over these past two weeks? Maybe a few names that we we wouldn't have had our eye on them. Uh, and then they, you know, go on to such a terrific run. Well, I mean, I'm impressed that Jen Chingwen made us look good, you know, because we got that yes. one right, that she was we she did. was due for something big. We spoke about her at length with Nick. So other names, uh, Diana Yastremska was one that years ago looked like she was going to be a really big deal. And then for, you know, whatever reasons, it didn't really transpire. She's been in the mix, top 100 and what have you. But she was a top 20, 25 kind of player um, just a few years ago. And out of qualifying, and Nick mentioned that he got to speak or almost speak with her, but, but watch that qualifying run as he was doing work through the qualies all the way to the semifinals, now back inside the top 30. So that's really rewarding to see that a player who, you know, is young, tasted success, then kind of stumbled, able to get back on track. And so this must must be just a huge confidence boost for her. Uh, and one other name before, you know, I throw it to you and, and you let us know as well who impressed you. Uh, you know, Danielle Collins, even though she fell early and she's a player that has tasted a lot of success in Australia over the years, she really pushed world number one Iga Sviantek, uh in their round two encounter, three-set match. And then that she announced afterwards that this is going to be her last year on the WTA, which... Um, Clearly, she's talented enough to, to carry on for many years, but uh, that impressed me that, you know, for whatever the reasons, if it's because of some of the, you know, health things that she's had to deal with or just that she has other interests that she wants to pursue, um, I say good on her that she's decided uh, that this might be it for her and go going out on hopefully her terms. Yeah, I thought she put forth an incredible performance in that match with 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 Iga. It was top flight tennis from Danielle's side, and Shkontek finally dug in in the third and and rallied to escape with the victory. But I almost feel like Collins played a small, albeit role, in Iga's departure to to Linda Noskova uh, later in the tournament. Um, just her level of tennis was was so strong. Um, of course, the shout out to another Ukrainian in, in Marta Kostyuk. What a tournament for her, breakthrough to the quarterfinals. The, the draw did open up for her. I mean, it it understandably opened up for a number of players. Zhang Xinwen didn't face a top 50 opponent uh, until that final. Of course, when you have Iga, Rybakina, players like Jabur and Zachary and others falling early. This is what happens. But, uh, you know, 
if you can take care of business with the draw you're presented, uh, good on you. And, and Kostiuk had a, a great tournament before losing to Coco Goff in a, a three-set quarterfinal match, which was unusually mesmerizing in sort of how messy it was. Both players were kind of struggling at different times. I think they accumulated over 100 unforced errors, but they were fighting with what they had. And credit to Goff for coming through that match when she was struggling with her forehand. I was impressed by Kostiuk. I was, of course, impressed by Linda Noskova as well, who... Uh, you know, she did get a bit of a reprieve from Svitolina, who very sadly injured her back in their fourth round match. But what a performance to beat the world number one at Igish Viantek. Uh, she played incredibly well. You know, when I hear over 100 unforced errors, that just makes me feel so much better about my own game. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I make there. a lot of errors. I make a lot of errors, but I, I can safely say I think I've never made over 100 in a, in a it's, it's hard to play long enough to, to hit 100 unforced errors, to be honest with you. You know um, what else makes me feel better? And just to kind of move over to doubles for a second, what yeah. makes me feel a lot better, too, is a run like Rohan Bopana winning Amazing. his first Grand Slam doubles title at the age of 43 and reaching world number one. I mean, this is fantastic stuff. And we do see that doubles players typically have a, a longer shelf life. Look at what Daniel Nestor did uh, for Canadian tennis and, and winning every slam at least once, Olympic gold medal as well. But to accomplish these things at his age, which, by the way, happens to be my age, um, it, it makes me feel like I should go out there this week and, and aim aim higher, you know, at my age. Like, don't let that number restricts you to what you can do. Because if a 43-year-old can go out and achieve something like that in a professional sport, then uh, you know what? I think uh, I can still do some things on the public courts here with my buddies and, and whatnot. I thought it was one of the most inspiring stories uh, of the two weeks in Melbourne. And uh, I, I wrote about it for for Sportsnet's uh, website. If you get a chance to to read, it was one of my takeaways that Father Time is defeated. Rohan Bopana achieving this at age 43. And it was interesting because he claimed the world number one in the middle of the tournament. And he had done that. And he and his partner, Matthew Ebden, who is Australian, I, I looked back and they actually hadn't won titles, but they were consistently making final after final. I think final in Paris, finals at the ATP World Tour finals, deep run at the US Open. And I was just stunned that Bopana had never won one of these things. Um, Me too. So, I wouldn't have guessed it, to be honest. Yeah, because he's I, so I, consistently there among the better doubles players in the world. Exactly. I, I figured he at least had one or maybe two. Uh, so to finally break through at this stage, at this age, just what an incredible performance. What a story. And, uh, you know, another player who did the same. She's 38 years old. Shea Shu Wei, by the way, of, of Taiwan. Unbelievable. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Winning the women's doubles, winning the mixed, mixed doubles, doubles as well. And she retired from singles actually here in Melbourne. There was a bit of controversy that uh, the tournament didn't give her a main draw wildcard entry. So she did lose in qualifying, uh, but to show her class and pedigree and doubles and what a fun personality she is off the court. Anytime what a, what a she fun takes the mic. Too. Totally. What a fun game to watch, right? As well, the way she plays it. So terrific mm -hmm. stuff. And, uh, you know, one more doubles comment that we need to make, of course, on the Canadian side of things. How many times have we said at the last Canadian standing ends up being Gabby Dabrowski. And yep. this time she made the semifinals with uh, fellow Kiwi slash Canadian Flash Canadian Kiwi, yeah, Aaron Routliff, yep. uh, and also the quarterfinals in mixed doubles with Nathaniel Lamons. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see for me that this is the first time she's made a, a finals and then semifinals, or I should say semifinals are better, I guess, at two consecutive Grand Slams and women doubles in her career. So she just seems to be getting better and better. And I think we've mentioned it before. We've had Aaron on the, the program in recent months. The two of them are just such a, a great tandem they click so well together 
on the court, off the court. They seem to be having so much fun when you look at their social media posts together. I love this partnership. And to me, it seems like they're going to be a tandem to watch out throughout this this year. Yeah, and now number five and number six in the women's doubles ranking. So right, right up there. Like I, if they stick through with this partnership, which you have to think they will throughout the season, why wouldn't they? Uh, they should be, again, one of the top teams, again, competing at the WTA finals. And they'll have their chances at all three other slams, I think, along with the WTA 1000s. And, uh, and what a rise for Aaron Routliff, my goodness. I mean, Gabby's been consistently in the top yes. 10 for quite a while now, but for Aaron, uh, to have this moment, it's terrific, and we're so happy for her. She's one of the nicest people you'll ever talk to. It, it's too bad she can't represent Canada at the Olympics because, my goodness, yeah. the damage that her and Gabby could achieve there. Um, I think they'd almost be the, the 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 favorite, really, if you think about it. But uh, not not meant to be. But you know, Gabby should still have uh, a good chance there with uh, you know maybe Leila Fernandez. Who knows? Because those two have had success at the Billie Jean King Cup playing together and. To keep it international, maybe to end the podcast on an international result uh, or a tournament, rather, I should say. Davis Cup is coming up. The qualifiers, 12 nations vying for uh, six spots. Am I right? Or is it, sorry, 24 nations vying for go. 12 spots. Thank you. Yep. I got it. I never did well in math. Uh, at the uh, the Davis Cup finals later this year, Canada will be taking on Korea on home soil. The tie is being played in Montreal. They've put a bubble of some sort over center court at IGA Stadium in Montreal, which is cool. And uh, we'll talk about who's representing Canada in a moment. But also for us, Ben, you and I taking our show on the road. Matchpoint Canada is going to be there front and center throughout the tie this coming week. Yeah, I think great opportunity to, of course, see our top Canadian faces, uh, the ones who are coming. Uh, opportunity to see Davis Cup tennis again. I think it's been a very long time since I've actually watched Davis Cup. They played here in Toronto, I want to say back in 2018, which may have been Daniel Daniel Nestor's last professional match actually in doubles which i watched and milos was there at the time i believe it was tie against the netherlands so uh this will be a unique and exciting opportunity i know tickets are still available uh, at iga stadium so if you get a chance it's on the friday and the saturday and who we who are we bringing well milos roundage is stepping in dennis shapovalov opting to play opting to play this week at uh, montpellier the atp 250 with felix socialia seems so milos roundage coming for singles the veteran vashik pospisil who will surely be utilized in doubles. And then we have uh, the Canadians from Quebec, Gabriel Diallo, Alexi Gallarneau, and just from Newmarket down the road from me, Liam Draxel, also stepping in and, and joining the roster. And, you know, I, I think this is a pretty strong group. Uh, most of these guys inside the top 300, oddly, uh, Milos Raonic is just outside the top 300, but he in a way feels like the strongest singles player to me. Uh, absolutely. That serve alone and what it can do on an indoor hard court and uh, the experience that he has. It's great to see him back. He played for Canada um, just a few months ago, wanting to make sure that he could qualify for the Olympics this coming summer, because you've got to have represented your country in international play, I believe, even the previous two years. Uh, but here he is stepping in for Dennis, who rightly so, I totally understand why Dennis is off chasing some ranking points, wants to get back into the top 100. Felix is also playing that event as well also wanted to get his ranking back up to where he believes it should be. So to have Milos there to kind of anchor things in singles is huge. Uh, I would expect Diallo to go in the second single slot and maybe Vasek so. and Alexi Gallarno in doubles. Um, and, and I think it's a strong squad. I think we're heavily favored in this one. And look, it's a shame that we don't get to see the, the Davis Cup team play on home soil every year. And that's just the way that the event is structured. 
Uh, we didn't have to qualify last year because of our, our victory the year before. But it is a shame. I think there should be a home tie or the opportunity for a home tie every year. And I really miss that. This is a great opportunity for tennis fans in Canada to see some live action outside of the National Bank Open and uh, to see some of the best players that we have. I'm really excited. I like the the mix of the veterans and the youth. And I think Diallo and Gallerno and Draxel can learn a whole lot by spending a week training, practicing, learning from and hanging out with guys like Milos and Vashik. Definitely. It is a really strong group. Uh, I'm really pleased with the fact that Milos Raonic is coming because that tells me uh, that his injury that he suffered in that first round loss to Alex Dimenauer in Australia was nothing serious, uh, that he's safe to get back on the court quickly. He must be feeling good about himself physically. Otherwise, I don't think he would commit to, to play. So that's also a really good sign, I think, not just for this upcoming weekend in the Davis Cup tie, but for his season at large, that if he feels physically ready and able to compete, um, you know, all signs, all signs pointing positive for Milos so far in 2024, I'll say. And you know what? Aside from the tennis, I'm equally excited for Montreal bagels and smoked meat sandwiches yeah poutine ben we're gonna have some nice meals we're gonna have to get back and uh, get on the treadmill or get on the tennis court <laughs> or something but uh we're gonna enjoy ourselves in in that sense too and and to be surrounded with a lot of the people that we know and work with at tennis canada but maybe don't get to see them as often as we'd like so um yeah very excited to go and uh, and enjoy a few days in my hometown with you yeah yeah stay tuned guys as well we'll have uh hopefully interview or interviews with a few of the players on site that we'll be bringing you in the coming week thanks to nick mccarville as our guest this week you've been listening to match point canada we will talk to you next time <laughs>